Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. The past year has brought a reckoning for big business in the U.S. and beyond. In the face of pressure from the Black Lives Matter protests, corporate giants, including Adidas and Pepsi, have pledged to do more to diversify. And that promise was made not only to customers, but also to staff and to management. But for all the momentum, just one in three managerial positions across rich world countries is occupied by a woman. And in the US, women hold just over a quarter of seats on managerial boards. The picture becomes even more striking when it comes to race. Just four black women have led Fortune 500 companies. Two of them begin their posts this spring. So this week we're asking, is it time for diversity quotas? Well, our guest today, Ursula Burns, was the first African-American woman to run a Fortune 500 company as CEO of Xerox from 2009 to 2016. She went on to chair the telecoms giant Vion, and she now sits on the boards of private and public companies, including Uber, ExxonMobil and Nestle. Our editor-in-chief, Zanny Menton Beddoes, talked to Ursula Burns as part of an Economist subscriber event, and she began by asking whether, as she took her first summer internship at Xerox, Ursula had any sense that one day she'd be running the show. The answer is absolutely not. I didn't know very early on what the very top was. Um, I grew up in an environment where we struggled. I mean, we struggled for the basics in life. My mother's focus was on our safety, our education, and our health. So my goal when I was growing up was to make my mother proud, and that was to get a good education and get a good job. (laughs) That was it. I I happened to stumble upon engineering as a career, and that changed my life and was hired by the perfect company for me, which was Xerox Corporation, a company that didn't care about what I looked like, um, didn't care about how I spoke, only cared about what I knew. And that fortunately for me, I could control what I knew. I couldn't control all the other stuff. You said you stumbled into engineering, but... How does one stumble into engineering? I think you wrote at one point your schooling prepared you to be either a nun, a teacher or a nurse, but you didn't want to do any of those. How I found out about engineering was I took a test in that's a standard test that they give in the United States called the PSAT. It's a preliminary um, scholastic aptitude test. And I scored pretty high on the PSAT in math. And my guidance counselor, who was a lay person, came forward to me and said, you know, you could probably do more with this math stuff. (laughs) And I started to think, well, maybe I could. So I went to the library and looked in a book and found out what careers um, you could have if you studied math. And what I found out was that chemical engineers made more money after four years of college than any other field at the time graduating in 1980. It is unbelievably unfortunate that the way that I got my career guidance was by accident. Engineering is one of the most lucrative, enjoyable, accessible, 
applicable careers that you could have in the world today. And still, people of color and women have no clue what engineers do. They are discouraged by not being encouraged. If you think about number of jobs open around the world, when I was working with President Obama in the United States, um, the first year that he was president, 150,000 engineering jobs went unfulfilled. Let's turn now to kind of how we fix this problem, that there are so few women and so few people of color in engineering, but in STEM subjects more broadly. How important is it to have role models, to have people like you who've, who've done it? It is so stunning that we are still talking about this to this day. Young people seeing people who look like them um, is very important, right? So you know, young people see drug dealers all the time and they will become a drug dealer. That's all you see. Seeing people who actually create value, who look like them, who didn't have these um, miraculous beginnings or, you know, leap a tall building in a single bound type of lives is really important. If you're a middle class to rich um, white American, you see a lot of the world through experiences that your family has, through people your, your family knows. And if you're in a, in a very poor environment like I was, your world is pretty small. What do you need to do to fix it? Let's think of mentorship itself. How important is that? Yeah, opening up the world to have access to more. So internships, um, people coming in to speak. One of the things that we had to do a lot of is partnering engineers, scientists, mathematicians, nurses, whatever the heck it is, with schools so that they can actually see what these individuals did. But we can fix this. One of the things I would say all the time is it does, you can't make an engineer in a year encouragement, funding, good teaching. It's, we know how to do this. It just doesn't happen in a four-year presidency. It takes a long time. And we just need a structure that can keep at it, keep at it, keep at it. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of what we're calling for, what I'm calling for, what we're calling for, for business to do, who generally have longer lives than, than the leadership of, of countries, is to get actively more engaged in the education system. This is not a government-only thing. They should say, we need AI. We need people who know computer science. We need people who know chemical engineering, so on, so on. So partnering to make sure that supply meets the demand. You talk to Microsoft, you talk to British Petroleum, you talk to BT, they will tell you what they need. Why aren't they not having those conversations with schools in such a way that they can actually get output that they can use? So I suspect that takes a lot of leadership at the corporate level. But let's just stick with the political environment for a second, because in the U.S. we do have a new administration with a kind of deep commitment to diversity and yeah. to racial justice with the first black and Asian American woman as vice president and Kamala Harris. Do you see any evidence that this administration is going to bring real change or is it just cosmetic? I am extremely hopeful based on initial interactions that the administration knows that we have a lot to fix and is really committed to fixing it. I am really hopeful. I will tell you, though, Zanny, that I will be disappointed at the end, I am sure, because the administration, like every administration, worked for two and a half years, head down, and then after that time, they have to start running for the next election. So they get a little distracted. So I want to get off to a, a really fast start early so that we can get a flywheel going before they get distracted to start looking for who's going to be the next president. The, the system is, is, not, is not geared towards long-term commitments, but I am hopeful that we can get enough started, particularly with the change in the, in the way that businesses are starting to approach some of the social dynamics that 
are happening in the world, that combination of a, a push by the administration and a partner with business and social justice organizations, et cetera, can actually start to move us in the right direction. I'm very optimistic about it. And what does success look like concretely there? What, what, what would you see as markers of progress? I think in the short term, some of it has nothing to do with education. Some of it has to do with more financially inclusive, healthcare inclusive, government-sponsored, invigorated policies and actions. We've lost a lot of ground. Look at what's happening on Wall Street. It is amazing. We had a year of essential shutdown of the world and the profit levels, the growth levels of these companies didn't miss a beat. It's actually crazy. And the exact opposite is happening on Main Street. The exact opposite everywhere around the world. The vast majority of the families, middle income to lower income families, these are just regular Americans, regular Brits. These guys are struggling. They are waiting for their next $1,400 stimulus check. There has been a dislocation, an uneven, unfair dislocation of the most important cohort of the, of the world, the middle class and the lower middle class. These are the guys who keep the, the world kind of going. They have been really harmed. So I think what has to happen around the world, but I'll focus on the U.S., we literally have to be affirmative in our actions to build back some of the savings, some of the comfort, some of what was lost in the last year. Many people don't like this because it's quote unquote welfare. And then we're going to have to do the slow moving steps on healthcare in the United States. Educational infrastructure has to be improved. That means that kids have to get back into school. Technology has to be properly applied and teachers have to be paid and resourced to the level that they can actually help students. We have to. Build this is that a up. huge. This, sorry to interrupt you, but this is this is like this is an entire you know two administrations worth of an agenda, um, and but it I goes. So. It's, it's, I don't think so, Zanny. I think that it's it sounds huge. It's called doing what we should be doing every day. I'm not saying fix all the bridges. We should have a plan for the bridges. We should have a plan for the roads. We we know we can't fund it in day one, but a comprehensive, integrated plan. This is what you do in business. This is what you do in your family. Why can't we do it in the country? It's an imperative that we start to show progress in areas that we need progress versus these crazy debates that we get into about whether, you know, whether you're a Democrat, whether you're a Republican, whether you're conservative, whether you, those things are all interesting side conversations. Building a sustainable future is what's going to be important for us. Let's just narrow the lens slightly and back to corporate leadership, particularly on the question of diversity, where I am struck if you look at corporate America, 2020, 37 of the companies in the Fortune 500 were led by female CEOs. That was a record high, 37. And in the entire history of the Fortune 500, there have only been 19 black CEOs out of 1,800. Only two black women either now running or about to run Fortune 500 companies. Ross Brewer took over at Walgreen Boots and Thesunda Brown Duckett at TIA. A really extraordinary how few. Now, why is the corporate world overwhelmingly pale and male still? Because the structure, the owners, the designers, the controllers of the structure are pale and male. That's why. The world was built on the backs of women, on the backs of people of color, on the backs of the poor. The pale and male, as you call it, I, I say people with penises and testicles, <laughs> particularly if they are pale, have been in charge of the world forever. By the way, 
God blessed them. I, I, people say, well, you don't like, no, no, God blessed them. We have roads, we have medicine. They didn't do everything wrong. But by definition, they did not include. They needed to not include so that they can control money, resources, uh, knowledge, access. Where we are now is that, first of all, the numbers are getting smaller, right? They're, they're, they are in a minority in the world today, pure numbers. Women and people of color, they have more access to information. They are educated better than ever. And we're increasing in numbers. So we, we're starting to scream a little bit more saying, wait a minute now, this is just not reasonable. COVID helped to accelerate some of this uh, racial justice or injustice help to accelerate some of this. Women, the whole Me Too movement, but broader than that, corporate America is starting to get smart. This is not something that's going to go backwards. The status quo is not fair. It's not balanced. It's not inclusive. It is owned by a group of people who didn't get it all fairly. Not the ones today, but their ancestors didn't get it all fairly. And we have to absolutely open it up. The world is ready for it. What do you say to those who argue that identity activism has gone too far? We call it identity activism when a woman speaks about it but, or a black person speaks about it, but we don't call it identity activism when the status quo speaks about it. It's kind of a strange thing to, for us to actually defend speaking about ourselves as who we are, right? We, and we have to kind of eliminate that from the conversation because then it seems like we're pushing black people. No, I am who I am. I'm a black woman. You're a white woman. White men are white men. The only reason why we even bring it up is because the other side, the, the status quo, has built the wall around them with, with the, those attributes. If it weren't for that, we'd just be called people. It'd be called people activism or individual activism. I really get nervous and, quite frankly, annoyed when people say to me, well, why do you always bring up the fact that you're black? I said, because I am. I mean, what, I mean, what is this like? What do you want me to do? Not talk about that? That's who I am. I'm a, I'm a woman. I bring it up too. You said it. You, you know, look at the numbers. There are not enough of us. So we have to identify ourselves or be identified as the only, the first. There'll be a time when we never have to do that anymore. And I'll be happy when that happens. Until it happens, we have to bring it out. In Europe, you, as you know, there has been a much bigger move towards having mandatory quotas for women on boards. That's something that I think you used to be skeptical of, but you're now in favor of. Is that right? Do you think that's something that has to happen in the US too? Absolutely. Let me tell you why. I, I literally railed against quotas for years. I said, you tell business leaders, smart business leaders, what to do. You give them a business case for their position. They will do it. They're not stupid. Right. I mean, if, if it's better to have a diverse team, which has been proven over and over and over again, they'll have diverse teams. Guess what we found out? They don't do it. <laughs> they don't do it. And they, it literally hasn't happened. We've been waiting for 20 years. Would you also put a quota for racial diversity as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, don't think this has to last very long. What you need is you need a start. Right. What the UK did, which I thought was masterful at the directorship level. And California did this as well. You have to have a certain number of directors. After a while, when you get a cohort in, literally it's easier to attract people once you, you don't have to have quotas forever. You just need to get a jump start. I do believe that particularly in America, but particularly because of the history of America, we absolutely have an African-American problem that has to be dealt with, has to be dealt with. We're still living with it today, 
that has to be dealt with. Quotas help there. Quotas help women. Now, like I said, I was dead set against this because I said, come on, we know how to do this. We know how to run our companies. Women can make it. We can. It turns out we've been trying, Zanny, and it hasn't worked. It has not worked. I hear you. I hear you. I, I, the liberal in me is still has is a bit squeamish about quotas. I wonder how much no, liberal in me is squeamish about quotas too. The path that I am, I am very sure is is you know a, an easier path to go down and maybe effective is the is the kind of disinfectant of the spotlight of transparency. If you mandate the publishing of diversity statistics, if you mandate transparency, do you think that gets you quite a long way? It gets you away, but not fast enough, not quick enough. We'll have years more of injustice. We've proven that as well. I will say the UK is one of the best examples out. You do it on day one, 12 months later, all these women appear out of nowhere, competent, capable women to be on boards of directors or in C-suites. I don't think that there's enough momentum of just Let's show the numbers. People can say, okay, fine, we'll make a little bit of progress here. We'll have years more of what I call injustice and exclusion. And we've been waiting long enough. And there is no reason in the world why they have to wait one day longer. Why do we why is it that we have to convince people? Why do we have to show that it is fair? It is right. We have the skills. We have proven it over and over again. So why are we excluded? Why is it you can't fix it tomorrow? Do you think boards are the right place to focus? I think that there are two areas that are hand in glove that have to be focused on. I think the pipeline is good. We've Pipeline has not been poor over the last 10 years. It's been good. We lose them all in the middle, the women and the people of color, because they get fed up and they just leave. So we hire them. Colleges are producing more and more of them. They come in and they, they say, basically, I can't deal with this middle management crap of you know, I don't get the best job explaining why you have to go give birth to a child that creates the next generation of people. You have to get, get penalized for literally doing what God, you know, whatever, whoever wants you to do so that you can be here. We can all be here. I think that there are two places that you have to focus. One is in the board and the second is in the C-suite. That combination is a deadly combination if you're doing bad things and a unbelievably powerful combination if you're doing the right things. If you expect it and you pay for it, then you get it. If you inspect it and you pay for it, then you get it. So you have to have great expectations and good transparency and absolutely will make progress here. I want to make sure that I back up with something about quotas. Quotas is not the solution long-term to a problem. It's a whole change in our interpersonal dynamics, you know, societal dynamics. But if we waited for that, it's just too long. It's been going on too long. It's been going on too long, as you say. But do you think now is a moment where you are more optimistic about change? This is a movement, not a moment. If we keep talking, if we keep pushing, if we keep having the expectations with the proof points that the people are there, the business still runs really, really well. Actually, in many cases, better. This is the time where we can't back off. Can't back off. And do you think the kind of leadership that is needed in 2021, in a post-pandemic world particularly, the kind of world you've been describing that you would like us all to create, what are the skills that are necessary, the traits that are necessary to lead well in that world? I I think words like team-based, inclusive, realistic, having a reasonably high emotional quotient, you don't have to be like a savant or anything, a reasonably high emotional quotient and somebody who has a word that I love, grit, and somebody who's curious and a little bit adventuresome. 
because we have the opportunity now to not just do what we did yesterday. We have permission in just about every every walk of life, every function in a in a company to change things. It starts quickly with what does everybody come into the office? How do you include people who are different? How do you use technology? How do we actually deal with the impact on the earth? All of this stuff is up for up for grabs. So this curiosity and this ability to be brave enough and flexible enough to try different things, I think it's going to win the day. We are in a point of building now. We are at a point of redefining now. And any company that goes back to what they were doing before, I think it's going to have a short sheet in the bed. Your feet are going to get cold. What a great place to end. We're in a period of redefining and building. We need adventuresome, curious leaders with grit. Ursula, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Our thanks to Ursula Burns and to Zanny Minton Beddoes there. And of course, we'd love to know what you think on this really fascinating and important topic. Do quotas work or do they have unforeseen consequences? Could you have them transitionally, as Ursula Burns was suggesting? Or would you need to keep them for the long haul? And what's your experience been in your own company? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. We're very happy to hear your views on any side of our arguments. And this conversation was part of an event for subscribers to The Economist. To find out more about events like these and get full access to all of our journalism in print and online, do subscribe at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the notes for this episode. The producers were Rose Palmer, Alicia Burrell and Amika Shortino-Nolan. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.